Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for making this podcast possible. They give us the space, they give us the equipment, they give us the help. It's a fantastic partnership. We love working with them, so thanks to the Cleveland Public Library. If you're listening to this, be sure to go onto your favorite podcast service and to rate and review us. It really helps other people see us. We'd really like that five-star review and that excellent rating from you if we've earned it. Uh, we're on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, just about anything you can imagine. So try to get on there and find us if you can. And if you have any feedback about this show or you want to request a guest or anything like that, go ahead and email me. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that is srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on Ohio Matters, we had State Representative Bill Seitz. Uh, Bill can be described as a lot of things, I guess, but the easiest way to describe him is probably one of the more entertaining characters in the Ohio legislature. Am I right, guys? Yeah, he's uh, always got an interesting quote. He's uh, known for giving funny speeches on the floor. And then also, like besides just kind of amusing us generally, he's pretty influential in Columbus. He's prolific. He doesn't just go down there and like deliver bills that don't actually happen. He gets stuff done, you know, better or for worse. You know, it's sort of, I guess, polarizing. But at the same time, uh, he is an important person to kind of know and to understand, you know, what he's doing down there and kind of what makes him tick and stuff like that. He seems happy to infuse humor into whatever he does, and I think he has a sense of humor as he goes about legislating. I think that he has taken up some issues that could could be seen as kind of funny. Like one of the issues that he took up was uh, fireworks because he, he thinks it's ridiculous that, you know, Ohioans can't pop fireworks. Uh, it's technically illegal, and he wanted to make it legal. So Even though they sell them in Ohio, you just have to promise that you're not going to set them off in Ohio, too. Right, which, right. you know, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he, I mean, he thinks that's ridiculous. He's he's a funny guy. He's a character. He's a good guy to know and talk to, and, and he's a, he's a, he was an interesting guest. He's almost at that like perfect crossroads of showmanship and substance where, you know, a lot of times you'll have politicians who want to make a big splash, but they may not actually get anything done. Or you have the workhorses who aren't necessarily in the public light or anything like that. And Bill seems to be at the confluence of those two things. I mean, I, you know, I remember him talking about the smoking ban and just saying like, oh, well, I love to, you know, get off work and have a cigarette like and now I'm not going to be able to do that inside. And I believe he actually talks about smoking a little bit in this podcast. So I don't know. I think he's he's one of the more fascinating. Uh, state representatives in the state and probably on the show that we've had as well so something I wanted to clear the air on by the way uh, I may have said that Mary's father works in the oil industry Uh, Mary would you like to address that Um, yes I have been stereotyped as an oil heiress uh, in my life I am not an oil heiress my my dad does not work in the uh, the oil industry uh, my grandfather did, um, but uh, yeah. So, so, so right family tree, wrong branch kind r- of thing. Right, okay. right, right, yes. So anyway, this is super important for everyone to know. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I know. Yeah. While Mary is not an oil heiress, her cousins did strike oil and move out to L.A. and have a sitcom that was recorded after them. Was, yeah, it was a documentary, I thought. It was, yes. Well, they, they turned, it was a documentary that they turned into a sitcom oh. later. I, I, it was I, the first iteration of the real world, actually. It doesn't get more real than that, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the interview that Andrew and Mary did with uh, State Representative Bill Seitz. Uh, Representative Seitz, thanks for joining us. Uh, glad to be with you both. So... 
Representative, can you tell us how you became involved in politics? Sure. I was originally uh, recruited from being a uh, community council president in Cincinnati's most populous neighborhood uh, by the Cincinnati Business Committee uh, to run for the Cincinnati Public School Board. Uh, My mother had been president of the Ohio Council of PTAs, and the uh, business committee, which is uh, the larger businesses in our area, wanted to get folks on the Cincinnati Public School Board who would be receptive to recommendations they were making uh, to uh, run the Cincinnati Public Schools in a more business-like way. So they said, would you please run? We'll bankroll your campaign. And uh, I agreed to do it. Uh, Frankly, I will tell you that being uh, a conservative on an urban public school board is probably the hardest public job, public office job I've ever had or that one could ever have. But uh, that's how it started. And I was elected for the first time in uh, November 1989. And uh, it went on from there. You became an Ohio legislator in in 2000. Can you talk at all about how Ohio politics has changed for Republicans since then? Well, Republicans have had a long string of uh, electoral success. I've been fortunate to be part of the majority for the entirety of the time that I've been in the General Assembly. Uh, I certainly would not like to be in the minority because they get precious little that is uh, done. Uh, But being in the majority uh, is a great way to fundamentally rewrite Ohio law in ways that are beneficial. So being part of the majority has made it worth the financial sacrifice that being in the General Assembly entails uh, in terms of time away from my real job as as an attorney. And aside from the fact that the General Assembly has received zero pay increase, not even cost of living since January 1, 2008. But uh, I, I, I look past all of that in the interest of being part of a majority that is passing uh, good legislation. So it's more fun to be in charge is what you're saying? Well, it's more fun to be in a position to effect change. Uh, it's, it's, it's really no fun to sit in the minority and carp and complain and grandstand, and they do that because they're not able to effect change very often. There is a high degree of bipartisanship on bills that are relatively inconsequential, <laughs> but uh, there is a, a growing partisan divide on bills that are consequential. So I tend to focus on bills that are consequential. So do you think that the legislature's become more partisan even since you've uh, become a part of it then? Uh, I would say I would say it's become marginally more partisan, yes, uh, <clears throat> because there used to be a more substantial swath of semi-conservative Democrats uh, with whom we were able to find common cause. But as their numbers have shrunk to being on the losing end of two to one super majorities in both chambers, uh, those Democrats that are left tend to be extremely liberal, uh, more representative of shall we say, the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party than of the Jimmy Carter wing of the Democratic Party. And that has contributed to an increasing amount of partisanship, in my opinion. Why did you decide to to run for office to become an Ohio legislator? It was it was really an opportunity that presented itself by reason of term limits. In 1992, the uh, voters of the state of Ohio voted in a constitutional amendment establishing an eight-year term limit for service in the Ohio House or the Ohio Senate. And the, the first year in which that constitutional amendment took effect was 2000. And so the long-serving state representative for my district, 
district, uh, who would have been reelected as long as she cared to stay there, was unable to run, and so was about half of the Ohio House of Representatives. And so I said to myself, well, this would be an opportunity to run, to be elected, and to be in a position to do something relatively early on without having to sit in a back bench for five or ten years before you ever attained uh, a level of seniority where you were able to get things done. So it was that opportunity that was opened up to me by term limits that allowed me to run in the year 2000 and uh, and, beco- and become actively involved. And that's exactly what I proceeded to do uh, in my first four years in the General Assembly. Uh, I focused on uh, mainly on civil justice reform, uh, the tort reform of bills of which we passed about two dozen uh, during that four-year stint that uh, fundamentally uh, uh, changed the landscape in Ohio for businesses worried about exposure to tort liability. And since my background was as a litigator and, and an attorney, uh, I was able to contribute substantially to that that very long and grueling effort, which was ultimately successful because the Supreme Court of Ohio has upheld virtually the entirety of what we did. You've become known for your colorful floor speeches. We wanted to know, do you recall a specific speech that caught people's eye or drew attention or that you're particularly proud of? Well, the one that my dear friend, former Speaker Batchelder, liked the best was the speech that I gave about eminent domain. Uh, eminent domain, as you know, is the power of the government to seize private property for a public purpose. And uh, what we were trying to do was uh, establish that uh, that same rewrite of the state eminent domain laws ought also to be applied to the cities throughout the state of Ohio, notwithstanding the Home Rule Amendment. And so in an effort to attract Democratic votes, I read the uh, long passage from the Old Testament about the first known exercise of eminent domain uh, when uh, King David coveting uh, his uh, neighbor's grape grape, uh, vineyard uh, and uh, his neighbor's wife uh, ordered his uh, neighbor off to war to be killed so that he could uh, uh, hornswoggle the uh, grape arbor and the neighbor's wife at the same time. And uh, that was in an effort to try to reach our uh, Christian uh, friends on the other side of the aisle. It ultimately was not successful, uh, but it was a it was a way to weave in history with a current event. And I know Speaker Batchelder, uh, who was not Speaker at the time, uh, thought that was a particularly memorable one. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, do you, Do you write your own speeches? I do. I do not have anybody write my speeches for me, uh, and I generally don't write them all out, uh, particularly on the floor. I hope that you're sufficiently familiar with the legislation before you that you can stand up and extemporize and explain the main points without uh, reading a whole long speech that, in many cases, uh, with others, is prepared by their staff. So what's your philosophy about your speeches then? I mean, is it clearly you, you often inject humor into it? I think that's I think that's I think that's very important to do because you know we have to at one at at one level be able to demonstrate uh, a an intellectual understanding of what we're doing but uh, a little levity always uh, helps uh, and uh, shows that uh, we can be uh, jovial about it even if we're expressing strenuous disagreement with uh, a differing perspective so uh, I think mixing in historical illusion uh, current events uh, uh, old songs, old uh, old uh, movies, uh, all of that, uh, liven it up a little bit because otherwise sometimes these floor sessions can get rather dreary. I remember uh, one time when we were debating whether the uh, 
rules about fracking in Ohio should be stricter or more lenient. Uh, I explained uh, to the tune of the Beverly Hillbillies that uh, uh, when all is said and done, the natural gas revolution is going to provide uh, benefits to southern and eastern Ohio that they hadn't seen in 100 years, uh, much the same way Jed Clampett became a millionaire when uh, shooting for some crude and up through the ground come the bubble and crude, if you remember the old Beverly Hillbillies show, which uh, I grew up with. Yeah, we We've seen it. Ohio tea, if you will, rather than Texas tea. Yeah, actually, Mary's dad's in the oil industry, so maybe it's like mandatory listening or mandatory viewing for her. I I did grow up in Texas. Somehow that always uh, slips in. You know, we're curious, too, to talk a little bit about some of uh, the legislation that you've advocated for. We were hoping to get your thoughts on red light cameras. Well... Sure. Uh, it's been a, 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 a long and spirited uh, uh, battle. Uh, in the year 2006, the Ohio House and Senate passed uh, legislation that required a police officer to be present to witness any of these red light and speed camera violations. Uh, I was a big proponent of that legislation. Uh, unfortunately, on his way out the door, then Governor Taft vetoed it. Uh, and uh, many years later, I was attending a roast of Governor Taft and was giving him some grief about having vetoed the first bill on that subject. And Governor Taft said, well, Bill, back in those days, I had people driving me around. But now that I'm driving myself around, I think I agree with you. Uh, So that was kind of humorous, a little wit from our dear friend, our former governor, Bob Taft. Flash forward to 2014, we got the essentially the same legislation through the General Assembly and this time signed by Governor Kasich. Uh, But the Ohio Supreme Court last summer, in a rather surprising five to two decision, said that that new state law establishing these kinds of standards for the use of red light and speed cameras could not constitutionally be applied to home rule cities. Uh, Would still be applicable in townships and counties, of course, because they don't have home rule for the most part, except for Cuyahoga and Summit that have charter counties. Uh, But uh, nonetheless, uh, that was a setback to our 2014 legislation. So mindful of the need to respect the Supreme Court, the latest iteration of our legislation in this subject area comes about recently passed the house house bill 410 what it does is two things it says to the extent that any jurisdiction chooses to rely on red light and speed camera revenues uh, civil civil fine revenues to augment its revenue stream uh, we will reduce the local government fund allocation that the state provides to that jurisdiction on a dollar for dollar basis and then secondly we will also say that as with most other municipal ordinances the city must actually go to municipal court and prosecute these cases as a violation of a municipal ordinance no longer will they be able to have administrative hearings where an employee of the very city that is trying to raise the money adjudicates the guilt or innocence of the uh, driver uh, in the first instance. So they will have to go to municipal court, pay the filing fee, and prosecute violations of these municipal ordinances the same way that they prosecute other violations of municipal ordinances. And uh, that is uh, our latest uh, gambit. Uh, It doesn't regulate red light and speed cameras at all. It says you can have as many of them as you want. Uh, You can put them at every intersection as far as we're concerned if you're a home rule city. However, uh, it will not be a mechanism for you to make money off unsuspecting motorists. We've seen 
uh, in Dayton. The NAACP has launched a drive to uh, get rid of the cameras in Dayton as a matter of social justice. They believe that the cameras are being set up to uh, prey upon low-income and minority motorists. Uh, in Toledo, we've seen where the cameras have been strategically placed to maximize revenue from non-resident commuters coming into the city of Toledo to work. Uh, so we've seen places like the village of Bryce down by Columbus that have gotten fully 73% of their total general revenue fund budget from issuing red light and speed cameras, uh, over $171,000 in revenues last year uh, in a village of only 120 people. Uh, so uh, if you believe that these cameras are all about safety, you would have to conclude that the village of Bryce must be the most unsafe place in Ohio if they need $171,000 worth of tickets uh, in a very small jurisdiction with only 120 residents. So the new bill tests the allegation that these cameras are deployed for safety purposes and not for revenue enhancement purposes by saying, okay, then you're not going to uh, generate a net profit revenue out of these cameras. Have you ever gotten a ticket from a red light camera before? I did in the year 2010 or 11. Uh, it was right around, it must have been in, must have been around 2011 because it was around the time of Senate Bill 5. I got a camera, in, a ticket in Columbus for turning right on red at a location where right on red is permitted. Uh, however, the Columbus uh, uh, gendarmes thought that I did not come to a full and complete stop, even though there was no traffic and no pedestrians anywhere nearby. And so I thought to myself, well, that is a ticky-tacky ticket. I did pay it, of course. Uh, that is a ticky-tacky ticket uh, because, uh, in essence, Columbus was sitting like a referee at a Browns game uh, calling uh, illegal procedure because an interior lineman flinched before the ball was snapped. And I said, well, if that's if that's the kind of ticky-tacky tickets to which you are resorting in order to generate money, that's all the more reason why we need to renew the work that I did four years earlier in 2006 to put guardrails around the use of these cameras. I, I am kind of curious, did, did your own experience with a red light ticket inform your, I guess, work to get rid of these red light cameras? <laughs> No, no, because as I said, I started down this road in 2006, four or five years before I ever got this civil citation from Columbus. So I was on this, uh, I was on this way back when. As a matter of fact, the city of Cincinnati, uh, where I'm from, uh, they passed a charter amendment to their city charter, uh, been approximately 2006 or seven, that absolutely bans the use of these cameras within the city of Cincinnati. So the folks down here in my neck of the woods have a very dim view and always have had a very dim view of these kinds of revenue enhancers. Right, right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll be interested to see how that works out, certainly. I just got a ticket about three weeks ago, so um, I'll be watching closely. You know, the, the other question I have for you, you've moved to fully legalize fireworks in Ohio, and you said local officials could ban fireworks in your bill quote, if they wanted to be un-American about it. I'm just curious, why fully legalize fireworks? Why was this an issue you took up? Uh, well, the origin of my interest in this issue is that for the entirety of the time that I've been in the General Assembly, uh, we have very sneakily, uh, not me, but others, have very sneakily put in provisions in big bills that extend a moratorium on the issuance of new fireworks licenses. You can sell fireworks in Ohio, but only a very few people are authorized to sell them. And so time after time, they would go in the dark of night uh, with 
legislation to extend the moratorium. I did not like extending the moratorium. It seems to me that we should end the moratorium and permit more competition in the sale of fireworks. But we want to do it in a responsible way. And so that was the origin of my interest in this issue. Three years ago, the Ohio Senate, of which I was that time a member, passed a bill that is in many respects identical to the legislation that Representative Marty Sweeney and I are carrying uh, and have successfully carried through the House. And what that legislation did was provide a process to end the moratorium and also end the ridiculous fiction by which you can purchase fireworks in Ohio, but only if you promise not to discharge them in Ohio. Well, anyone who's ever been around the 4th of July in Ohio knows that there must be a lot of people that are not obeying the law. And so, therefore, my proposal was, let us end that fiction. If the people can buy them in Ohio, let them also discharge them in Ohio, and let's make it a matter of local control whether the local jurisdiction wishes to regulate the hours and days of operation or ban them altogether. There may be communities with such a high proportion of animals that might easily be scared by fireworks or folks suffering from PTSD that might easily be antagonized by fireworks that they might choose uh, to ban them within their particular village. Uh, other jurisdictions may say, we don't care uh, as long as you do it safely. So the bill that we've done returns to local control, ends the moratorium, uh, ends this ridiculous fiction by which you can buy fireworks in Ohio, but you can't sell them in Ohio, and makes all of this effective July 1, 2020, subject to the workings of a broad-based study committee that the legislation creates that includes proponents of fireworks and opponents of fireworks, the idea being that if that study committee comes up with any other good recommendations around the regulation of fireworks, we would have one full year uh, from July 119 to July 1, 2020 for us to get around to implementing those additional regulations. So uh, we think it's a great bill. It passed the House overwhelmingly. We're looking forward to uh, its consideration and passage in the Senate, which the Senate ought to do because it is virtually the exact same bill for which a huge majority majority of the Senate voted only three years ago. Well, we'll be watching uh, the 4th of July skies in Ohio to see uh, see how that bill works out. You know, well, I also... again, again, we're not legalizing it until July 1, 2020. Oh, okay. okay, so several years. So, okay. So what you see, what you what you see this coming 4th of July is just how poorly current law works because I remind you, current law, which will be effective this 4th of July, says no one who is not licensed can discharge fireworks in Ohio. So walk up and down your street on 4th of July and find out how many of your neighbors are disregarding the law. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I also, um, on a more serious note, want to talk about your passion for criminal justice reform issues. You uh, co-sponsored legislation that would ensure wrongfully imprisoned individuals are justly compensated. Can you talk about uh, why this is an issue that you are uh, passionate about? Uh, absolutely. I've done defense-oriented litigation for my entire 40-year legal career, and I can think of nothing worse than for a wrongfully convicted person to languish in prison when the state has failed in its most elemental constitutional duty, which is to turn over to the defendant any evidence in the state's possession that might be exculpatory. In other words, that might tend to show that the defendant was not guilty of the crime of which he is committed. Now, I do not contend that the state 
regularly fails in its constitutional duty, but failures do happen. And there have been people in Ohio who have been incarcerated for dozens of years only to find out after the fact that there was exculpatory evidence in the possession of the state that was not turned over at trial. That violates the so-called Brady Rule. The Brady Rule actually predates the Miranda Rule, and everybody knows what Miranda is all about. But the Brady Rule is you will turn over to the defendant any exculpatory evidence. And so what our current bill does, and I'm doing this in a bipartisan way with my friend Representative Amelia Sykes from uh, Akron uh, and over in the Senate, my friend Senator Eklund and uh, Amelia's father, Senator Vernon Sykes from Akron, uh, is to say that if uh, it turns out that the defendant was wrongfully convicted by reason of the state's failure to follow the Brady rule, then that person would be eligible to be compensated by the state up to the maximum amount of about 52000 a year for each year they were wrongfully incarcerated. If it was you, if it was me, if it was any one of us, we would actually think that compensation was insufficient, but at least now these folks would be able to be compensated. Under under the preceding law, only people that proved their actual innocence of the crime could receive compensation. We changed that through Representative Sykes's mother, Representative Barbara Sykes and I changed that in 2003 to say, no, errors in procedure that result in your wrongful conviction should also be eligible for compensation. But the Supreme Court in 2014, in a case called Mansaray, said only those errors in procedure occurring after sentencing qualify you for compensation. That was a misreading of the 2003 law that Barbara Sykes and I passed, and we are correcting for that misreading in this new legislation that we hope to get a vote on very soon. It's out of committee. It's on its way to the House floor, and it's really something that is the least we can do to rectify a rare, but sometimes it happens, failing of the state to do what is constitutionally required. You know, I know that you mentioned that that this work in criminal justice reform has been inspired or you drew from your your legal experience. Are there any other issues, you know, that being an attorney uh, informed uh, the way you conduct yourself in politics? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the Latin root of the word legislative is legis meaning law. So it really does help to have been a practicing attorney, whether we're talking about the changes in the probate law that we've done, changes in the involuntary commitment law. I mentioned the wholesale rewrite of eminent domain law in Ohio, which I uh, worked on very, very uh, substantially back in the mid-2000s. The civil justice reforms that we passed, the big criminal justice reform that we passed in 2011, uh, dealing with uh, additional options for low-level prisoners to earn credit while in prison so that they could be properly trained and educated while in prison and get out early so that judges could release nonviolent offenders early if the judges so chose. The adoption of risk assessment instruments throughout the state, which we did in 2011, so that judges in every corner of the state would use a risk assessment instrument from pretrial all the way through post-conviction as a way of judging an offender's risk to society uh, and uh, using a, a tool developed at my alma mater, the University of Cincinnati, which has been used throughout the state 
to providing greater resources uh, in our prison system for mental health and uh, addiction services. Uh, all of these things are informed by my legal background. I would say just about everything I do up there is informed by uh, my legal background. And, and it really helps uh, to have had uh, experience as a lawyer and in the courtroom in knowing what needs to be changed in Ohio law. I'll give you an example of something I'm working on right now. We have a statute in Ohio that says that if you murder somebody, you don't get to inherit from the person that you murdered. Makes a lot of sense, right? But that statute does not include folks who are guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Even that form of involuntary manslaughter that requires that the offender have recklessly <laughs> killed somebody. Well, uh, a person who found themselves in this situation, i.e. the husband uh, killed the wife, and now the husband is trying to inherit from the wife, asked me to please work on amending this statute to include uh, at least some forms of involuntary manslaughter. So I was able to reach out to lawyers that I know here in Cincinnati, to the Judicial Conference, to the Ohio Prosecuting Attorneys Association, and now I'm reaching out to the Ohio Bar Association through its probate law committee, uh, and I believe uh, we should make that change. That's something that if you were a non-lawyer, you wouldn't necessarily be able to to uh, jump on as quickly as I was able to jump on it. And it's one way in which we try to improve the statutes in Ohio uh, by using our legal background. You gave one of my favorite quotes from a state lawmaker of all time uh, when I think it was 2014, you were described your outdoor refreshment area legislation and just as background for our listeners, in effect, it's kind of like what they do down in New Orleans and Louisiana, where you can drink outside legally, uh, only you wanted to make designated areas here in Ohio where that could happen. So your quote was, for the first time in six years, I'll be able to walk out and enjoy a cigarette and a drink at the same time. Um, how did that idea come about? And have you been able to do that yet? Uh, believe it or not, and this is a funny story, too. Uh, Representative Denise Treehouse, a Democrat from Cincinnati, and me worked together on that legislation. Uh, at the time, the city of Cincinnati was getting ready to host the Major League All-Star Game uh, in the not-too-distant future, and uh, they asked us to move heaven and earth to get this bill passed so that the city of Cincinnati could establish an outdoor refreshment area at the Banks area, which connects the football stadium to the baseball stadium. And so Denise and I did exactly as requested by our city fathers and mothers and got the bill passed, only to find that the city of Cincinnati to this day has not done a darn thing with that legislation. That doesn't mean it was bad legislation because other jurisdictions in Ohio have used it with great effect. But it just goes to show sometimes you do things trying to help out your local governments, and then they say never mind. And why they said never mind, I don't know. But I think it's a travesty uh, that we have failed to implement that great concept at one of the best locations in the state where it could be implemented, because we have a number of bars and restaurants in that area between the football stadium and the baseball stadium that would be perfect for just this kind of activity that it's not only in New Orleans, it's not just Bourbon Street, uh, it's also in Memphis. I've been down on Beale Street, seen it in Memphis, seen it in Savannah. It's actually been used to great effect in a number of uh, places. And so it's, it's uh, on the books, and I hope Cincinnati takes advantage of it sometime. Yeah, in Cleveland, there's some talk about putting one in place uh, in advance of the Republican National Convention, and it just didn't happen. So I guess uh, if people want to drink outside legally, in Cleveland, well, I guess we'll just have to wait. 
I guess we'll have to wait. Right. Or do it in your backyard. Or do it in your backyard. That's right. So I, you know, I mean, what happened in Cincinnati, what little I know is the city uh, apparently went to the affected bars and restaurants and say, well, we'll do it, but you have to pay all the costs associated with it. And they said, what? This is going to be beneficial to the Reds, to the Bengals, to the city, to the other businesses in the city. And you're asking us to foot the entire bill uh, for, you know, roping off the affected area and making sure that people are not, you know, falling down drunk and blah, blah, blah. So in other words, they imposed unreasonable, in my opinion, unreasonable conditions on a relatively small group of bars and restaurants, which resulted in it not happening in Cincinnati. get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information visit cleveland.com capital letter That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. Changing gears a little bit, uh, this year in 2018, obviously there is uh, an election happening. How has, I guess, just the, the political environment of this year's election affected, in your opinion, the business of the state legislature? Oh, well... <laughs> I'm a fairly activist legislator, and I've noticed in recent years, not just this one, that in both the House and Senate, uh, we're not passing as many bills as we used to, okay? Uh, And that is a change I've noticed over my 17 years or 18 years up there. There is a very spirited and rather nasty race going on right now uh, between two very fine candidates who seek to be the next Speaker of the House, assuming the Republicans maintain control of the House. There is a fairly spirited and somewhat nasty uh, primary election going on for governor on in both parties. Uh, and, uh, uh, and of course, all this is against the backdrop of, of uh, Mr. Trump and all of the uh, issues and, and, and things that are happening up in Washington, D.C. So I don't know that any of those fights have uh, themselves interfered with the business of the state legislature, uh, but uh, they are uh, distractions and they are complications. And there's many members that have primaries, uh, uh, and there's a number of open seats with uh, primaries that I think all of that has some folks 
walking on eggshells up there. And uh, that's unfortunate, but it's just a fact of political life. Uh, people have a right to run in primaries and people have a right to seek the office of speaker. I just would hope that they would do it by focusing on their own attributes and their own merits rather than by tearing down the other side. And maybe that's the, uh, I, sh I shouldn't be this Pollyanna-ish at age 63, but I still try to look for the good in people. And, and uh, it's perfectly fine to be tough and it's perfectly fine to have very strenuous disagreements on matters of policy, but I, I do try not to, you know, get personally nasty with people. I don't I do not do that. So you mentioned the Republican uh, primary for governor, and I remember earlier on in this election cycle, you appeared in at least one Facebook Live sort of interview with Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor. Um, yes. Did you endorse her? Yes. So what do you think about uh, the race that she's run? Well, look, uh, to the extent she is focused on uh, Attorney General DeWine's U.S. Senate record. I think that's completely fair game, all right? And to the extent that, that Mr. DeWine won't even engage uh, Lieutenant Governor Taylor in a debate, I think that's a shame. I think we're entitled to have a debate. Uh, so I, I don't have a problem with those ads that she is running. Uh, I think Mike DeWine has done a good job as Attorney General of the state of Ohio. Uh, I don't think much of his record in the United States Senate, uh, and uh, I do think Mary is the better candidate in the general election uh, because she is a proven vote getter in years in which the Republicans did not fare well. Look at 2006 when she was the only Republican that won statewide. Uh, she is an accountant by background, has private sector experience, has experience in the state legislature, and eight years experience as John Kasich's lieutenant governor. So, uh, you know, I, that, that's why I endorse Mary Taylor. I think she's well-spoken and attractive and uh, to the extent, you know, uh, folks are, 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 are looking for a new, fresh face. Uh, she probably supplies that, uh, in my judgment, to a greater extent than does General DeWine. But that's not to denigrate Mike DeWine's uh, good work as Attorney General. I've, I've worked on issues with him and his office, and uh, I have no problem with that. But I, I, uh, I, uh, I think Mary Taylor is ruffling some feathers, uh, certainly doing holding her own down here in my corner of the state, and I have no idea how she's doing up your way. I know she targeted your area with one of her recent big ad buys. Um, do you feel like, and basically she was attacking uh, Mike DeWine and his record in the U.S. Senate, do you, do you feel like that's something that resonates particularly with people in Southwest Ohio? Uh, I think so. I, I do think so. Uh, I remember Mike DeWine was the deciding vote back in the day against drilling, against drilling for oil in the Anwar uh, area up in Alaska. Uh, I remember uh, that, uh, that uh, <laughs> you know, some people questioned what his role was in blocking uh, conservative judges to the court. I remember uh, some of his votes on the uh, illegal immigration question, uh, seeking to find uh, uh, some sort of compromise legislation there. Uh, I think that's all fair game. I think that's all fair game. Now, Mike DeWine has come back with his own hard-hitting ads, uh, but he's also come back with some very good ads. He's, he's focused on uh, the wonderful family that he has, his wonderful wife, and, and uh, kind of a warm, touchy-feely uh, ad, but it's a pretty effective ad. Down here in Southwest Ohio, Mary has uh, more people that have endorsed her uh, than has been the case throughout the rest of the state. Our state senator, Lou Terhar, 
has endorsed Mary, so has the former president of the state school board, Debbie Terhar, Representative Tom Brinkman, tax killer Tom has endorsed Mary, I have endorsed Mary. So uh, she's got somewhat more vocal support. And by the way, the fellow that ran Trump's campaign uh, in Hamilton County is running her campaign in Hamilton County. So, you know, I think she is focusing a fair amount of her effort in that little corner of Southwest Ohio. Yes. So uh, the lieutenant governor was among those who, I don't know if she criticized you personally per se, but there's criticism about comments that you made in uh, several months ago at the roast for a now former legislative staffer, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And just just prior to that, there had been a uh, sexual harassment training, and just as background, um, as far as the reporting at the time claimed that you made light of, I guess, some of the sexual harassment issues that were happening in the state house. So what's... What was your recollection of that training, and what was your recollection of that 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 event? Uh, well, we had number one, we had sexual harassment training, which I've had before, uh, both in elected office and in private practice. Uh, the fact of the matter is, what was reported in the original blog was simply untrue. Okay, uh, what I said derogatorily was about a former female legislator. It was not anything about sexual in nature. Uh, it was about her rather out there right-wing views and she sent me four days later a letter uh, quite unsolicited in which she said she took no offense whatsoever and uh, and uh, and uh, was actually proud of the moniker i wear a tinfoil hat so i'll just read you the first uh, couple lines of her letter to me this is from former representative fessler and none of this was ever covered in the press uh last night i read the letter that you sent uh, to the speaker earlier in the day had you and i had the chance to speak before you wrote your letter i would have assured you that i felt no need for an apology i value free speech mine and yours Until recently, Americans put tremendous value on the right to speak freely, even if the words spoken didn't tickle people's ears. For me, I want no part in hastening the day when we can never say what we think without apology, for on that day, the loss to our nation will far exceed the hurt feelings of the snowflakes of this world. And then she signed it, warmest regards wrapped in tinfoil to keep them that way from your friend Diana. So the initial reporting around this was wrong. Uh, I did uh, make light of Diana Fessler uh, tinfoil hat. Uh, She wrote me back and said she wasn't offended at all. Uh, I did make fun of Senator Cliff Height, who had resigned in disgrace as a 63-year-old married grandfather uh, uh, chasing after a young unknown uh, LSC intern for sexual favors, but in no way was I making light of sexual harassment, I was ridiculing the harasser. And how this got so blown out of proportion, I simply attribute to uh, either a lazy press or a mendacious group of people out to, uh, uh, you know, uh, make a big deal, a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, And so, you know, that's what that's all about. But uh, the bottom line is, Uh, Making fun of sexual harassers is not making fun of their victim. I don't even know who Senator Heights' victim was uh, to this day, and and I was not making fun of her in any way. I was making fun of him for being such a, uh, for exercising such poor judgment. You apologize for your comments, though, right? 
I did, because as I say, when I when I issued my apology, I knew that I had in jest at a roast made remarks about former Representative Fessler uh, being told to leave her tinfoil hat in the office uh, before she uh, went to session. Uh, and uh, uh, that could be construed as derogatory, though, after all, it was at a roast. Certainly, that's not a sexual comment in any way. Uh, but uh, I did feel bad that if, uh, if that could be misconstrued, I certainly did not mean any offense to Representative Fessler, uh, and uh, I apologize, yes. So the thing with former Senator Haidt, um, I guess, came to light amid a sort of larger cultural current of, I guess, uh, less tolerance or whatever you want to put it for uh, that kind of behavior. So it's it's sort of hashtag me too. That, that's the sort of shorthand for it. Uh, what's your opinion on how that movement has affected dialogue in this issue? And, and I guess, how pervasive of an issue uh, do you think that is in, you know, in America? Well, I, I, I don't know how pervasive it is in America. It seems to be fairly pervasive in Hollywood. Uh, I have never been accused of any sort of improper sexual conduct, uh, even to this day. And uh, I don't think it's that prevalent in the Ohio General Assembly. Yes, you have had uh, one member, uh, Senator Height, resign for attempted sexual uh, conduct with a staffer. Uh, to my knowledge, nothing was ever done, uh, but uh, there's that one case. And then there's another case of a, a representative in the House who uh, resigned after it was discovered that he was having sex with another man in his state house office. Uh, but those are two people out of 132. Uh, probably the percentage of sexual harassers in the uh, General Assembly is no higher than it is in the general population and probably lower than it is in Hollywood. Uh, the interview that you guys did with Representative Seitz is also very kind of prescient in a way because there's been a lot of talk about lobbyist influence in Columbus in recent weeks. You know, Bill Seitz, he's actually been criticized by some for being too cozy with lobbyists. But you guys had a really interesting discussion about the lobbying ecosystem and what lobbying kind of how it works down there with him, correct? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about that topic is that, you know, when you kind of go beyond politics and policy and stuff like that, if you just talk to normal people about what they don't like about politics, I, I think lobbyists is kind of like the, you know, I think there's consensus on that. You know, it just seems kind of scuzzy, I guess, to like your average person. And there's definitely, if you actually talk to lobbyists, I mean, yeah, they're charming. So it's, you know, maybe there's that at play. But I mean, they really do have a, a, a genuine, legitimate role that they play. So it's just interesting. Um, you know, Bill Seitz is willing to have that conversation. He's willing to make the case of, of why, uh, you know, lobbyists are necessary. And uh, so it's just, you know, that's something about him, I think, is that he's basically unapologetic about the things that he believes. He'll uh, make his case. He'll try to persuade you that he's right and stuff like that. So is, you know... Um, and he even you know, rattled off the different types of groups that have lobbyists. And so he said, yeah, like there's the lobbyists, you know, for big oil or whatever, but there's also lobbyists for the little sisters of the poor. And uh, I think he said nudists, which is kind of weird, but we went with it. So, you know, it was, it was just an interesting conversation in general. I think Bill Seitz is willing to go where most politicians aren't willing to go, like explain kind of the way that they make the sausage per se, like the way that they pass legislation and the way things actually work in Columbus. I mean, most politicians would not want to sit there and have a conversation justifying lobbyists to you. But the the way sites did it, I mean, you know, it makes sense. People have jobs. They want to be represented by their lawmakers. So they hire people to represent their interests. The way sites 
described it, it it didn't sound so sinister. And perhaps that's because he's kind of like, you know, lifting the veil of of how politics like practically works. Let's get back to more of the interview with State Representative Bill Seitz. The first time that I interviewed you, and I don't know if you would remember this just because it's one of many interviews for you that I'm sure that you've done, but we talked about the American Legislative Exchange Council about, I guess it would have been around 2013. And around that time, there's a lot of attention to it because I think there was organizing um, on the left in kind of focusing in on its activities and a lot of the conversations at that time was about the stand your ground model legislation that they were uh, pushing with regards to firearms. Can you tell us about your work with Alec and, uh, you know, how, um, I guess, what what, what your take is as as far as how it's perceived? Sure. Uh, I I started to to attend ALEC meetings uh, when I was first elected to the state legislature. And ALEC operates through about five or six task forces. I joined the Civil Justice Task Force because, as I said earlier in the interview, that was my first area of focus when I was in the General Assembly my first time in the House. The Civil Justice Task Force was uh, chaired by uh, Victor Schwartz, uh, who was actually my uh, torts professor in law school and a very prominent uh, 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 attorney and professor in America. And so it was great to be reunited with him. And I worked on with him and eventually became co-chair of that task force with Victor Schwartz. Uh, as anyone who's a lawyer knows, uh, he is the author, uh, along with professors uh, Prosser and Wade, of the foremost torts casebook that lawyers get when they're in first year law school. So it was a great opportunity to reunite with Victor Schwartz. Uh, after a number of years as chair of co-chair of that task force on civil justice, they asked me to become part of the National Board of Directors, and I agreed, and I still serve in that capacity today. Uh, about 2013, the organized left began to assail ALEC uh, because they were stinging from the repeated successes of state legislatures around the country in becoming more conservative and more dedicated to the prospect of free markets, federalism, and and, uh, limited government. And so they decided to launch an all-out attack on the corporate sponsors of ALEC uh, in an effort to dry up its resources and uh, essentially try to take the intellectual uh, firepower uh, away from the conservative movement in this country. Uh, While they did have a number of successes in getting cowardly corporations to sever their uh, ties with ALEC. Uh, They have not been successful in their overall objective, and ALEC's membership remains very robust, and its funding remains very robust. And so, uh, but they did change ALEC in one way, and that is that ALEC made the decision uh, not to be involved in those social issues anymore, such as stand your ground and some of the other what I would call the social issues on the conservative side, and focus uh, rather exclusively on those things that most directly relate to free markets, federalism, and limited government. So, uh, yes, ALEC went through a bit of a rough patch, uh, thanks to the machinations of the organized left, but uh, we have survived, and uh, I guess they have largely moved on to other fish to fry uh, because now they have uh, Trump to contend with at the national level. Yeah, I guess they have a different set of bad guys to, you know, to sort of try to zero in on, or at least in their view, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, uh, look, uh, uh, 
I have been involved in Alec. I'm not. I'm not ashamed to say I am. The list of corporations that funded Alec is actually far smaller than the list of corporations that fund the National Conference on State Legislatures. So there is absolutely nothing suspect or wrong with corporations funding think tanks, uh, and they do it, by the way, across the spectrum from liberal to conservative. Alec is the more conservative organization to which state legislators may belong. Uh, The Council on State Governments is the more liberal of the three. NCSL is somewhere in the middle, but uh, corporations who see only green and neither red nor blue uh, tend to fund all three. So uh, just sort of in a similar vein, uh, I I guess it's pronounced GOPAC, um, was funded a couple of events last summer that we've reported now has drawn attention from the FBI. And I'm I'm not asking you, I guess, or we'll ask you about that in a minute, but um, you know, it's sort of like at issue, it seems to be that there were some lobbyists who attended at least one of those trips. And I think there's questions about maybe what they talked about, what they were there. But what I wanted to ask you, though, is uh, how do you view the relationship between legislators and lobbyists? And I think there's maybe this perception in the general public that that relationship is too close. But as, as somebody who uh, lives it, what, what do you think? Well, I'll start by giving the speech that I give to uh, public audiences, school children, high school classes, etc. And I go through every conceivable occupation that anyone could ever have. And I point out that they all have lobbyists in Columbus. If you're a teacher, they're represented by lobbyists. If you're a cop, they're represented by lobbyists. If you work for a utility company, they're represented by lobbyists. If you're a teamster, they have lobbyists. If you're a trucker, they have lobbyists. If you're a, 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 a banker, they have lobbyists. If you're a credit union worker, they have lobbyists. You get my point. Lobbyists are a, a fact of life and everyone is represented up there. Your job as a legislator is to listen to all of them, sort through what is bullcrap versus what is true, and then try to make the best public policy that you can. But the idea that there is something inherently evil about lobbyists uh, is not true. The fact of the matter is every single conceivable occupation has one. Why? Because the people that are actually working in those occupations are working. They cannot be around the General Assembly every day, and so therefore they pay people to look out for their occupation's interest when they are at work. Dentists have lobbyists, chiropractors, doctors, and anesthesiologists, and on and on. Even nudists have lobbyists. I have actually dealt with, a, over in, early in my career, with a lobbyist for the Nudist so, Association what, what of do, Ohio. What do nudist lobbyists wear when they go to the state house? Well, they have to be appropriately dressed, but uh, I, I actually forget what their issue was, but uh, I think it might have had something to do with one of those strip club bills that we were dealing with back at the time, and they wanted to be sure that we were not being so invasive as to shut down their nudist colony, and I said we are not trying to do that. So my point is, when even the nudists have lobbyists, I think everybody understands that there are ubiquitous lobbyists for every conceivable interest, and as long as you, as a legislator, Uh, interact with all of them, give them all a courteous hearing, ask probing questions, and then try to bring the warring factions together. That is my job, okay? That is my job as a legislator. But if you tune out all of the lobbyists, you will miss out on all of the valuable information that they sometimes can can give you about what's really going on in the field of anesthesiology or in the field of banking or in the field of, of, of you name it, okay? So <laughs> to say we shouldn't talk to lobbyists, we shouldn't meet with lobbyists, we shouldn't have a drink with lobbyists is to make yourself a bad legislator. 
Um, one of the sort of, like, I guess, larger scope criticisms about term limits, which you mentioned at the very beginning of this, is that suddenly you have a bunch of inexperienced legislators, and then you have a bunch of very experienced lobbyists who become the authority on their subject matter. Uh, would, do you think that, that, lo or that lobbyists have become more influential, just kind of in what you've seen in the Statehouse? The uh, bad side of term limits is just what you mentioned, Andrew. Uh, you've got a lot of folks that don't have the institutional memory, uh, and I believe the effect of term limits has been to embolden the bureaucrats, the executive branch, and to some extent the lobbyists against those legislators that have not got the institutional memory that a precious few of us up there do have. Here's a perfect example. We're dealing with a bill right now that talks about a bail, and it talks about using risk assessment instruments uh, to better operate the bail system. Uh, the two sponsors, who are both great guys and friends of mine, were not present in the General Assembly in 2011 when we already mandated the use of risk assessment assessment instruments at bail, for pretrial bail all the way through post-conviction. I did that in 2011 after having worked on it for three years. But yet you've got a bill coming in and it's being touted as, oh, look, now we're going to use risk assessment for bail. We already did that. But these folks, being well-intentioned and new, perhaps were unaware of the extent to which we had already done this. So what, I mentioned this a couple questions ago, uh, you know, now former Ohio House Speaker Cliff Rosenberger resigned pretty abruptly, and we've you know we've commented on that uh, here on this podcast. W what do you make of that whole thing, and, and what do you think happened there? Well, I, I I don't know. I mean, Cliff Rosenberger was nothing but a gentleman to me. I think he is a very sincere fellow, a very uh, a scholarly fellow when it comes to history. He knows his history as well or, or better than I do. Uh, he rose through the ranks very rapidly. He was very young. Uh, yeah, that's a, a tough thing to manage when you're only 36 years old and and uh, and uh, having all the responsibilities that he had. And the news struck me like a thunderclap. Uh, we were not consulted about what he should do. Uh, he simply made the decision to resign uh, and uh, issued a press release before the leadership members, the other members of the House leadership, were even uh, aware of it, or at least before I was. So I do not know what happened there. I don't know that anybody knows what happened there. Uh, I can say somewhat in jest, but somewhat in truth. Uh, <laughs> I was not at any of these foreign trips because I'm saying cigarettes probably saved me. I can't fly that long without a cigarette. So I didn't go to any of these trips uh, where things may or may not have occurred, and therefore I have no knowledge as to what may or may not have occurred on those trips. Yeah, and we kind of wanted to end on a lighter note. I mean, obviously you do have a reputation as a smoker. Uh, have you ever tried to quit? Are you smoking less these days? Uh well, no, I have, I have actually, uh, I have quit in the last 20 or so years, I have quit twice, each time for approximately a year. And to be very candid with you, I felt miserable throughout the entire year. And uh, that's why I went back and I have not smoked any more or any less uh, uh, in all these years. Uh, so at least that's good that I'm not smoking more. People should not take the habit up if they don't smoke currently, but, uh, I am, uh, I am, <laughs> I am a smoker. So I guess I can be dashed for that. But, uh, in some respects it, uh, it turned out to be kind of a good thing here. I didn't go flying all around the world like some other people did. And cause that'd be too long to sit in a plane without one. <laughs> yeah. Silver linings, huh? Um, Silver lining. Uh, w one last question. Uh, 
our, I don't think we've actually had any Democrats on this show since uh, some of the stuff that we're talking about transpired, but I know they're feeling kind of cheery about the overall electoral climate. And you mentioned maybe they're hoping that it's like 2006. How do you think this year will be electorally for Republicans in Ohio? Uh, you know, uh, I'm still pretty optimistic about our chances. The fact of the matter is uh, we have uh, good candidates, I think by and large better candidates than they do, certainly a significant monetary advantage over them. Uh, and, uh, you know, barring a, uh, a very unpopular war or a sudden and negative turn in the economy, uh, I think uh, given electoral history in non-presidential years, uh, the Republicans will do uh, all right, okay? Now, again, that's barring a big downturn in the economy or an unpopular war. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, the rumors of our demise, I think, are greatly exaggerated, uh, at least on the current evidence. And uh, uh, I believe the Republicans in the House, in Ohio House and Senate, will retain their majorities. All right. Well, I think we've actually even gone over a little over our time today. So uh, State Representative Bill Seitz, uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you both. Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye.